Uh, this morning, we're going to kick off a short series. Um, we're going to do the next seven weeks on these messages that Jesus gives to his messenger, to John when he's exiled on the island of Patmos, to these seven churches that are found in what today would be Turkey, like when we think about where this is uh, in the world. And I'm excited about this because these messages that were written to these churches are not exclusive to the ancient New Testament world. The messages, the warnings, the praise, the rebukes that Jesus gives these churches are relevant to us today as well. They serve as warnings. But before we get into the book, I want to set some ground rules. Um, you know, a lot of times when we think about the book of Revelation or we think about, you know, what the book of Revelation would be or whatever, I don't know, I think of those preachers in the 80s that had those paintings that were behind them, if anybody's a child of the 80s. You probably saw that, and they would read a scripture, and they would explain how this, this imagery is like a nation that's currently around today, or is a certain person specifically, and they start ascribing all these details to this book, and man, that is not the way to approach the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not a predictive text. It's not the Da Vinci Code. It's not, if you fold over this page and put these words together, we have this magical formula, and now we know cold fusion or something. I don't know. Like, that's, that is not what the book of Revelation is. And to appropriately study the book, we've got to understand a few things. Any book of the Bible that you read, it, there's a, a theme that's behind it, and there's a style that the book is written in, right? So if you read the book of Psalms, Psalms is poetry. So when we read the book of Psalms, there's an approach that we read the book of Psalms too. If we read historical books in the New Testament or, or the Old Testament, books of law, um, there's a way that we approach those. We approach letters to the churches or the gospels. We approach all of them in a different way. And it's important to know that the book of Revelation is something that's called apocalyptic literature. And when we hear that word apocalypse, maybe our brain goes to a moment where a meteor is going to crash into the earth and the only person who can save us is Bruce Willis, and he has to get on that meteor, plant a nuclear warhead, and split it so that the meteor avoids Earth. You guys know what I'm talking about? You've ever seen that movie? Right? So maybe that's kind of where, where our brain goes. That's where the Aerosmith's like huge hit, I don't want to miss a thing. That's where that one, that one came from. So it's a, good, it's a good jam. That's right. That's right. Your boy could sing, okay? Let's pray. We're just going to close now. We're just going <laughs> to. The good news is when Ron and I were preparing, uh, one of the rules we had was each of us have to sing a song during our teaching. So you guys are in for a treat next week. So <laughs> Ron and Samson are going to do Ebony and Ivory. It's going to be really, it's going to be really special. It's going to be really special. <laughs> oh, Lord. Huh. Okay. <laughs> So the book is not, the, the term apocalypse in scripture is different than like what we would think of it is, right? We have like these post-apocalyptic movies that you see and there's like zombies chasing people and stuff. That is not what this book is. Really, the, the word apocalypse and apocalyptic literature comes from this Greek word apocalypsis. And here's how one theologian uh, worded it and I think he encapsulates it really good. Apocalyptic literature or apocalypsis recounts a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present would be viewed in light of history's final outcome. We're looking at the past, we're looking at God's faithfulness in the past to understand our present, and then he presents this hope for 
the future. So this book falls in line with prophetic literature. And John, the author of this book, is saying that this book stands in the tradition of biblical prophecies and is bringing all of those messages to its inevitable climax. And this apocalyptic prophecy was sent to people who John, the revelator, actually knew. These were real churches where this letter went to. And if we can remember, what was a prophet's message in the Old Testament when we spend time in Scripture? If we understand that, it helps us better understand the book that we're reading and we're spending time in today. A prophet's message in this book, like I said, is not meant to be this um, secret predictive text about the timing of Jesus' return. If you read Scripture, nobody knows that. So anybody that says, I know when it's going to be, that's crazy talk. But what it is, is a book that finds stern and loving warnings and rebukes from a loving father. That's what we find, warnings that if God's people continued to turn their backs on him and walk in the way that they were walking, there would be consequences for those actions. And this book of Revelation, we see the same thing. And during this time, when John wrote this book, he was not only exiled on this island of Patmos, but the church in the New Testament was under tremendous persecution at this time. There was this guy, Emperor um, Domitian, D-O-M-I-T-I-A-N, and he was ruling kind of that area of the world, and this guy was responsible for boiling St. John in oil because he was a Christian. He crucified Simon, and he passed a law that said, and I quote, no Christian once brought before a tribunal should be exempt from punishment without renouncing his religion. This is the world that they're living in. And if you read the book of Revelation, we find Jesus' message to his church is not everything's going to be unicorn and rainbows. It's actually, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And that's where we're going to focus our attention for these next few weeks. See, there's one underlining message that Jesus is communicating to these seven churches, and it's simple. Will you compromise your faith for earthly safety and comfort, or will you remain faithful and endure till the end? So it's with that in mind that we're going to read our first letter, which is found in Revelation chapter 2, and it's written to the church at Ephesus, and it goes like this, starting in verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and then found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. This is great stuff so far. But verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you first had. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. 
Lord, we come before you with fear and trembling, Lord, to approach this book. And Lord, we approach you first, wanting to honor you in what your message is to your church and what it is to us today. So Father, we come together, Lord, with joyful hearts that sing your praise, with attitudes of remembering, Father, that it's nothing that we can, that we can do, there's no act or good deed that would ever reconcile us to you except your work on the cross. So, Father, we pray this morning that we would not lose our first love and you would draw us into you in new and deep ways, Father, and that you would give us the faith and the courage, Lord, to endure until the end. So, King Jesus, we love you and we trust you and we thank you for everything. In your precious son's name we pray, amen. So the first thing that we notice, and if you want to, if you could put up um, the first uh, slide for Revelation 1, I think it's one, th yeah, if we can keep this up, we'll just leave this up here for a little bit. But the first thing that we see, we get imagery right out the gate. We see, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words who hold the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold stands. So right out the gate, we could start going, we could start ascribing definitions, we can start ascribing things, if you will, to, to what these things are. And we have to stop and we have to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, okay? This book is being spoken by Jesus to a messenger who's giving it to John. So John is writing this, what he's hearing from this messenger, and Jesus is, or the messenger is saying, this is the word that's coming from the person who holds these stars in his hand and is walking amongst these lampstands. So now, what are the seven? You know, are they the seven uh, big sports in America? You know, are they the seven uh, different doctrines or theologies? You know, no, they're not. If we turn back our Bibles, one page or one verse from where our text is this morning, we find in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, it reads this, and I, I think I've got the scripture on there. It says, the mystery of the seven stars that you see in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Look at that. Mystery solved. We now know what these things are. Now, what's interesting, if you can go back to the Revelation 2, uh, 1 through 7. Okay. So, there's a lot of reading, and there's a lot of theologians and, hi and historians that when they read this, when they do their exegetical work, they do their hermeneutical work, there's two words that we find in the book of Revelation for angels, right? So it says that this person is holding these seven stars, and these seven stars are these angels, right? From what I've read, it is that the, the word that's used here is for angel is also used for messenger, okay? And later in the book of Revelation, when there's talk of heavenly hosts or angels or things like that, there's actually a different Greek word that's used throughout there, okay? So a lot of theologians and historians believe that these angels are the leadership of the churches, people who would receive correspondence on behalf of the churches. They're people who are in charge of teaching, leading, and preaching, okay? So that's, that's what all of the theologians, historians would point to. Can I say with complete, unequivocal, I'm telling you that's what it is, maybe, but that's what we're seeing from the original Greek. Okay, you guys with me so far? All right, so we have to approach this with a little bit of fear and trembling. And then secondly, we see these seven churches. 
and these seven lampstands. And a lampstand is a beautiful image for what a church is because what is a church supposed to be? It's supposed to be a city on a hill, a light. Somebody said a light, right? A light in a dark place. And what's really beautiful about the beginning of this, it says, these are the words from him who holds and walks. Okay, those, both of those words are present tense words. So what we see from Jesus is we serve a king who's holding and protecting his people and walking amongst his people. We don't serve a distant father. We don't serve one who doesn't know what's going on in our lives. What we see is a king who loves and cares for each of us. It's this continued promise that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8, that says, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So what we see in early scripture is continued in late scripture. Isn't that incredible, right? And then it's, it's, it's what Paul wrote to Ephesus in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavishes on us. The church, Jesus' church, was bought with his blood. And he cares for every one of its members personally. He walks amongst his people. He is not an absent father both are present tense. And not only does he walk with us and care about us, he knows what's going on in our lives. And we see this in verses two and three of our text this morning. It says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know you can't tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered. You've endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. I mean, we see a church here in Ephesus that is like doing really good. They've got rock solid beliefs. Like how many people would wanna be known as someone who lived this life? That's like, this is really, that's high praise. Like man, you know your stuff, you know your theology. You can parse scripture, you can understand original text, you can do this, man, you are crushing it from a theological standpoint. Their Wednesday night services probably had the best food on the planet. They probably had the spiciest worship. They had everything going on that you could possibly imagine. These guys were living up to what it was supposed to be. And it's interesting that they're lifted up and praised for this because when Paul planted this church, the Apostle Paul was at this church for probably about three years when he planted it. In Acts chapter 20, he communicates to the Ephesians and he says, hey, there's going to be a day where false teachers are going to come up. You're going to be around these people. So we see that clearly that happened. There were false teachers that were trying to communicate deception or manipulation or whatever it would be. And these people, they stood firm. They're like, we know the Bible. In verse 6, uh, it says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Every time I said that word, I thought of Nickelodeon this, this, whole, this, this whole couple weeks. I don't know. And I had to like write down how to say it because... I just thought I was going to say Nickelodeon when I said it, to be really honest. And there's not much known about who these people are. Uh, all that I could find in, in my studying was they were a group of people who lived unrestrained lives of indulgence. That's just kind of, this is who they were, okay? So the people of the church in Ephesus, they resisted all the right things, 
They taught all the right doctrine, they had everything together, and by all outward appearances, they looked really healthy. But we see this rebuke in verse four. It says, yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken the love you first had. When I was younger, there was a restaurant we used to go to, it was called Mama Lisa's, okay? Right out the gate, you're probably like, I bet that's really good. You would be right. It was excellent. Anything that you ordered was delicious. You want linguine and clams? Got it. Best you ever had. You want chicken parm? They're going to crush it. You want fruta di mare? You name it. It's all there. Huh. I'm like missing. I'm like I'm salivating even thinking about that right now. And it was this restaurant that was in Mastic on Long Island. It was great. It was in this like strip mall. And it was so good. And every time you went, there was a wait. And the food was every time, man. It was fire. It was so good. Fire for those over 40 is like something that's really good. You really like it. It's like a good word. Okay, it doesn't mean burnt or any of that kind of stuff. It's really, it's really good. Bill, you got that? You got it? Okay, got it. All right. You got it. So as the restaurant grew, it got bigger, they opened up a place across the street because they outgrew their space. And it took time for them to build it. And if you went to that restaurant, the menu was exactly the same. The recipes were exactly the same. The look, the feel, everything about it was exactly the same. But when you ordered that food, it did not taste the same. It was missing something. You see, you can get the recipe. I can hand over a recipe. Get a recipe from Becky Brown. Have her give you one. You ain't going to make it the way she makes it. Right? She's like a master baker. Like, it's just, it ain't going to happen. Like, she, she's better than all of us at that, right? So, like, but you could follow these instructions. You can do these things. But when love isn't rooted in the middle of it, you could taste it. There was something missing when you went to that place. And here's what's crazy. We stopped going. We stopped going to that restaurant. And every once in a while, you would go and be like, I wonder if they got things right. And it was never the same. No matter what we did, it was never the same. You see, this church in Ephesus hit this point where they were thinking through this theology or this doctrine of if I obey first, then Jesus accepts me. If I do these things, if I clean up my life, if I protect myself from these things, if I do these things, all good things, but that's the way that Jesus accepts me, and it's exactly what Pastor Nathan said this morning. There's nothing that we can do. Nothing. Jesus welcomes us at his table because he loves us and he wants us at his table. It's changing our thinking from I obey and Jesus accepts me to Jesus accepts me and I gladly obey. It's this recognition of like, I get to do this. I get to walk this way. I don't want to hold on to the things of the past. I want to let those things go. You know, when you're in ministry long enough, um, there's some successes that you see, right? And success is measured differently by a lot of people. I would measure success by seeing people come to Jesus in radical transformation. I don't consider size or whatever, you know, I don't really consider that stuff success. But you know, for 10 years we were in the recovery field. My wife and I worked, you know, hard in the recovery field. And something interesting happens in that field. I watched when we did something that quote unquote worked, a lot of other centers or programs or people would call you and be like, hey, how did you do that? How did you pull that off? And they want this like checklist of like, well, if I do this, then this will happen. I can't tell you how many people, we, we built a school down there. We didn't build, the Lord built that school. I, I had nothing really to do with it. 
um, the Lord built this school, and everybody started asking us, how would you raise money for that building? I was just laughing. I'm like, we really kind of didn't. We just prayed. <laughs> and the Lord just showed up. We had faith that it was his, it wasn't ours, and the Lord showed up. But you start having people ask you, well, how did you do this? How did you do that? And then they want to mirror things that you've done, right? I know Pastor Ron has seen this over the 17 years. People, well, how would you do this? How did you pull off this co-lead thing or whatever? And it's like you want to model something, but you're missing a really important step. The things that work were birth in prayer. They were birth in a season of diligently seeking the Lord and then following what he said we needed to do. And it was executed the way it was executed because the people cared and had love and compassion for what they were doing. The model that we have here at this church, it works. You know why? Because it was prayed about. And it was people being obedient to it, and it's covered in men and women who go, this isn't ours. This is the Lord's. We love the church. We love the body. But we love Jesus first and foremost. Then we get this privilege to come together as a body of believers, love the Lord, and work together. And we, we saw this all over the place. Where And then when, when programs or people did things that we did and it didn't work, they go, why didn't it work? I was like, oh, I don't know, because conformity is not what we were looking for. We were looking for life transformation. Are you hearing me? A list of rules, a list of do's and don'ts, there's no joy in that. Imagine being in a relationship with somebody, and that's the relationship. Imagine I will love you if you do the dishes. I had a big mistake this week. I'm going to go ahead and share it, Wendy. Accountability. I was on my way, on my way home. I was on my way home from work on Wednesday, and my wife was like, hey, I need you to pick up three things from the store. We had some company coming over, and I was like, you got it. I got you, girl. Don't worry about it. You can count on me. And then I got to the store. I was talking to my brother on the phone. I get home. My wife's like, hey, did you get the stuff? And I had one bag with one thing in it. And she's like, hey, like, what about the salad and the plates? And I literally was like, oh, no. I, like, crumbled. She's like, it's okay. I'm like, it's not. I will go get the salad, and I will go get the plates. So I looked at Sophie. I was like, Sophie, you want to come with me? She's like, yeah, let's go. So we get to the store. Sophie was very focused on getting gummy worms. We needed to get gummy worms. So we got some gummy worms, right? That's cool. I love doing that stuff, right? And then I got the salad, but I didn't get the plates. <laughs> and I came home, and I'm like, hey, got it. And Wendy's like, okay, like, where's, where's the plates? And I literally just put my head down. I was like, I don't even know what was going on. It was just like one of these moments, right? But like, my wife is frustrated with me, but her love isn't gone for me because I love her. She's the first person I want to talk to about anything on this planet. I want to spend time with her. I want to laugh with her. I want to, I want to do anything I possibly can with her. That's love. I try not to get emotional about this, but like, my, the one person that loved better than anybody I ever saw in my life was my grandfather. And they had a wedding song that was, I'll love you to the 12th and never. That was their wedding song. And later in life, my grandfather had Alzheimer's, and he lost his mind. He would tell me the same story. He met Babe Ruth. It's crazy. It's a crazy story about meeting Babe Ruth. He met John Gotti face-to-face. He's got some crazy stories. But he would tell me the same ones over and over and over again. And while things were changing here, one day, my grandparents had a whiteboard on their uh, refrigerator, and he wrote 
I'll love you to the 12th of never. He wrote that. He couldn't do anything in that relationship. He wasn't pulling his weight. My grandmother was busting her butt to take care of him. But he never lost his love for her. And that's the same love that we need to have for Christ first. That despite the circumstance, despite what's going on, we can have the best doctrine, the best theology. We don't got that heart, bro, who cares? We start having this list of things. You can't do this, you can't do this, and then we forget there's people who are experiencing those things that are grieving deeply of a circumstance. And what they don't need is a list of do's and don'ts. What they need is someone to come alongside them and go, man, I love you, I'm so sorry. It's so easy to say, I have the answer. Yes, we have the answer. His name is Jesus. But remember how Jesus approached all of his people. It was love, patience, and compassion. And we could be so quick to keep people on the outside that we never allow them an opportunity to even hear the gospel because they don't look, act the way that we want them to. How crazy is that? We're quick to support ministries that are these behind-lines ministries, but we don't volunteer for them. We don't go help with them. We don't get our hands dirty in those things. We want people to do everything else, but then we don't want to be a part of it. We are a part of things because we have a love. We have this desire to see lives transformed. And that's what Jesus is wanting from his people. Think Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. It is out of that that everything else flows. It is out of that life transformation, this passion. It's like when you, when you hear a worship song for the first time and it hits you. It's like never losing that and always holding on to those things of like, I get to worship the Lord. I get to share the gospel of Jesus with people. I get to walk through something difficult. One of my favorite retired athletes is Boomer Esiason, and he says, pressure's a privilege. When we have opportunities of people calling us, saying, I got this going on, I got that going on, we could complain and be like, well, just get your life together. Or we could see it a privilege that we get to pray for those people, that we get to walk through life with our brothers and sisters, yoked up, looking at the king of kings. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That can be hard. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. And then Jesus doesn't just leave it hanging where he goes, look, man, you've lost it. But in verse 5, he says, come back home. He says, consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you first did. If you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. There's an out. He's saying, come back and love your first love. Go back to the place where I first met you. Every one of us can remember the moment where we realized Jesus does love me. Jesus forgives me, and Jesus walks with me. And how easy, it's like a shirt that you wash a bunch. It was so bright and fervent, and then after you wash it, that color fades. So easy our walk with the Lord can fade, and it can become this system of rituals, practices, and not relationship. The Lord wants every single person here, I don't care who you are, to walk in a deep love and relationship with you. It's personal. 
You know, I got to see the, we were talking with Joe and Paula Gaughan about the Sistine Chapel. We got to see the Sistine Chapel. Um, and it was, it was interesting because a lot of people, there's two things that really stuck out to me. A lot of people only focus on the ceiling. And really, the walk-up before it is way more beautiful than the actual ceiling of, of the Sistine Chapel. But the back wall is this painting, and it's called Final Judgment. And it's, no one, everyone is naked in the picture, but this other painter painted everybody with clothes because he didn't like it. It was, it was a whole interesting thing. But it's, the point of this painting was everybody stands before the King of Kings equally. Equally. We're all judged equally before the King of Kings. And then if you look up, you see that very famous Adam and God. And God is just stretched out, reaching for Adam. And Adam's just kind of laying down with his hand out. Such a nonchalant approach to a relationship with the creator of all things. And it just hits me every time I see it. Like, that's us. That's how we approach our relationship with God. All he is is reaching out throughout all of time, throughout all of history, and saying, come home. Remember your first love. Remember what it was like when we hear testimonies. Remember what it's like when there was healing and there was forgiveness and joy. My friend Eric is writing a book on the life of Moses, and it's interesting because the perspective he's taking is, it's really hard to walk this life and look at these, these biblical historical figures where their life were not just these epic moments. Moses' life wasn't just crossing a Red Sea. There's a lot of downtime between that moment and when they are going through the wilderness and then eventually get into the promised land. It's that in-between that we can lose our love. Are you hearing me? And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're in a place where in your life you realize, you know what? I've punched the ticket. I've done all these things. I make sure I check all the boxes. I got my nice clean clothes on. I look a certain way. I act a certain way. I don't swear. I don't do this. I don't do that. I only watch G-rated movies. I do, and you have the list. You got it now. Good for you. My dear friend Derek Gilbert would say, how's that working out for you? At some point, our heart posture, our love, can't grow cold. It has to be this jubilant excitement that we get to walk with the King of Kings. And he loves us enough to come down to this earth, hang on a cross, and make a way for us to walk in eternity with him. And this is what's beautiful, right? He says, return, but then in verse 7, he ends this letter with this beautiful promise. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Which tree wasn't eaten from in the garden? Tree of life. There was a time in history where God said, don't eat from those things. You see how it's all coming full circle? He's saying, guys, in the end, you will eat from that tree. We'll be in heaven and victory together. We're going to walk out eternity with the one who created all things. That blows my mind. And living in a, and, and we could take this book and we could be scared or try to write books of interpreting it or we could understand what the King of Kings is telling us. Will we, as believers, compromise our beliefs live in a system 
and grow cold to the world? Or will we open our hearts and follow the King of Kings faithfully until the end? That's the question. So as the worship team makes their way up this morning, we've got three questions. And church, this is a great time too that if you really feel the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart, and this isn't just today, but this is for all of our services, we always have people in the back of the church that want to pray with you. There is not a thing to be embarrassed about, to be ashamed of. We want to yoke up with you, love you, pray with you, and point you to who the King of Kings is. But in this time that we close, three questions. Number one, do you remember what it was like when you first encountered Christ? Do you remember the jumping up and down? I remember when I was baptized in water. I remember that feeling I had when I came up. It was amazing. It was incredible. I remember that feeling. Do we remember what it's like to walk in the joy of the Lord, that he desperately loves us? But number two, let's ask ourselves honestly, have we lost our first love? Is that us today? Have we lost our first love? And do we need to repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I need to come home. And lastly, are you ready to repent and turn your heart toward the Lord? And here's a reality, church. This church in Ephesus, if you went to go visit it today, you couldn't because it's in rubble. The church never made it. The church never heeded the warning that Christ was giving them. Their hearts grew cold. They lived in this system. What we want to live in is life transformation. Amen. So as we close this morning, we take this time of prayer and worship. Let's respond to the Lord in whatever way he's working with you. So King Jesus, we come to you this morning, Lord, with a lot on our mind. Lord, with news of... Of, uh, of Nathan and Erica and this tremendous opportunity. Lord, we took time to remember you and your work at the cross, God, that we, we receive you, Lord. And Jesus, we take this warning that you gave to Ephesus to heart. God, protect and guard our hearts that we never lose that love and zeal and passion for who you are. Lord, we're sorry if we've made systems, if we've made idols out of doctrine. Lord, grow us in the ways that we need to be grown. And Lord, you're so good to forgive us, Father. So we, we are sorry, Lord, for the things that we've done. Teach us, King Jesus, to run to you and to not let our hearts grow cold. You've never given up on us. You'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us, Lord. Teach us the same. Use us as willing vessels, Father. We give this time to you this morning and ask it in your precious son's name.